Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. Last week I was talking with American David Cole, who's been researching the 100 years history of the Missouri Synod's Lutheran mission in China and Hong Kong, and has written two books on the subject. In this second program, David continues to tell me about the work of three key American women who refused to go home when they had to leave China after the Communist Revolution in 1949. Instead, they began to work with the mainland refugees in Hong Kong. In 1950s Hong Kong, tuberculosis remained a major health issue. One of the most exciting developments, this group that was out at Rennie's Mill, which is Junk Bay, started a clinic in, in the early 50s. And there was a Norwegian nurse who you may have heard of named Annie Scow. And she had come out of China very sick in 1952 and gone to Norway to recover. But she had been in Hong Kong long enough to know she wanted to come back. So she came back in about 53 or 54. She started work out in Chunk Bay, and there was a problem with tuberculosis. Annie Scow worked with Martha Boss, and the two of them started a little tuberculosis sanitarium called Haven of Hope, and that today is a large, large hospital out at Tui Kang Lang and a very well-known institution. And it was supported for many years by donations from various groups, but a large uh, youth group in the Lutheran Church in, the, in America, every year they collected funds and sent off and they built a quite a huge establishment and a chapel, and it's a landmark, or it was until it was surrounded by huge buildings. So was tuberculosis a, a big health issue here in Hong Kong in the 50s and 60s? Yes, and yeah, even when I came in the 70s, there were still tuberculosis hospitals. The treatment for tuberculosis has changed a great deal with antibiotics and so forth, so there's not the need to isolate and to have them in environments like sanitariums. The reason that this particular sanitarium got started or funded was that somebody had given a large sum of money in the states specifically to support tuberculosis sanitariums. Well, they were on their way out already in the 50s in the states. They were having other treatments. So a man who happened to be a classmate of a friend of Martha Boss found out about this operation or this idea, and he came and visited, and uh, he was the link that established a great amount of money to help support the startup. So the, the Lutherans back in America, they gradually got used to the idea of this mission in, in Hong Kong? Oh, in the 50s, it was, it was quite the thing. They, they, they embraced it wholeheartedly. You know, it was working in, in uh, continuing the work in China. It was working with refugees. It was doing social welfare. There was a lot of support. The women's organizations in the church collected monies and supported the building of units at this hospital. They paid for parts of the schools in these various schools that were built. And so there was a great a great support. Um, the church was very outward-looking in the 60s, and the Lutherans from various denominations, they were all getting along in the 60s, and so they cooperated. They had the Lutheran World Federation, the Lutheran Council of the United States, and so there were many, many joint projects. And so they re really um, did a lot of significant work. Now, for the tens of thousands of refugees who successfully made the trip from uh, mainland China to Hong Kong, and of course many would be stopped at, at the border and sent back, and uh, lots of other issues of trying to swim across some of the time. Um, so great hardship. 
but um, among them, you know, you tend to focus, I, I think, uh, when I think about them, you know, it's, it's those that uh, became the backbone of the toy-making industry, for example, in Hong Kong. Uh, these early factory workers, this, this can-do spirit. But it's, it's a bit of a rose-tinted view of it because among those tens of thousands were those that um, had even more challenges in that they were often either hearing impaired or totally deaf or otherwise uh, also blind. There were several waves of, of immigrants that came. There was a well-known one in 1952, which we now realize was connected to the Great Hunger. There was a, a program in, in, in China, to, the first five-year plan, and they were going to you know, revolutionize agriculture and so forth. And what happened instead was farmland was, was misused and mismanaged, and there was a famine in China, and you know people were dying by the millions. And so there was a huge wave of folks from southern China that, that came into Hong Kong until Hong Kong government finally put a stop to it. And we have stories from some of the early missionaries that they would go out to the border to Lak Machau, you know, and be able to talk to these refugees through the barbed wire fences that were not allowed to get through. And they would, they would pass through food and Bible tracts and, you know, encourage them, you know, and then those folks would end up getting herded up and, and sent back to China. So it was heartrending to see, you know, people getting that close and then having to be turned around. And, of course, even when I was here in the 70s, people would come in, and if they were found in the city, they would be, you know, sent back. So we used to go camping out in Saikung, and in the, the 70s there was a, several waves of, of boat people that would come across the Mears Bay, and if they survived the sharks and the oyster shells and those kind of things, their relatives often would meet them out in Saikung and bring them street clothes from Hong Kong, and get them changed into civilian clothes. And so we would find piles of blue shirts and pants along the trail as we would hike out to Dai Long Wan. So this, is, this was an ongoing situation. So yes, the situation carried on for several decades. Um, and, uh, you know, some, many would have relatives here who could help them. Many just came by themselves. So what would happen, you know, with the Lutheran mission? How did they help those who had disabilities uh, and also, you know, orphan children, that sort of thing? The work began actually in Macau. There was some deaf people in the refugee camp there. And in 1964, a man came out from the church to kind of investigate the situation. He was a hearing specialist, uh, a reverend. His name was Reinking. And uh, Reinking went, went back to report to the church that they needed somebody in Hong Kong to work with the deaf population of refugees, and the church couldn't find anybody, so Ranking got sent back, and uh, he brought his family with him, and they worked for several years in Hong Kong and in uh, Macau, and eventually established, through a long series of events, what became the Mongkok School of the Deaf, Mongkok Lutheran School of the Deaf, which is still thriving today. And it seems like people that were uh, somehow disabled, either sightless or hearing impaired or whatever, were uh, not wanted in the uh, People's Republic, and so they were allowed to come through. And so uh, there's probably a disproportionate amount of those uh, disabled people that were in the refugee population. And so the church worked with the deaf officially. Several of the missionary wives, Florence Winkler and Clara Seltz and Jerry Holt, those three women began working with the blind. And eventually there was a Hong Kong Blind Association started. I don't know the exact title of it, but it still continues today. 
and they established a, a ministry with blind and doing Chinese Braille. And, you know, people in the States, for their, uh, their church activities, would sit around and punch Braille cards for, the, for use in Hong Kong. So, it was, you know, it was a very interesting effort that uh, transcended. And when you look at the, the way things were transported in those days and the slow communication, it's remarkable that so much actually got done. They, got, they put out a newsletter starting in 1950 uh, that went back to people in the States. It was mimeographed. And eventually they would send the letter, and then it would be mimeographed and mailed in the, in the States. But reporting on, you know, different projects of a school doing this, some uh, blind people doing this, of um, workers that needed uh, help with their arthritis, all kind of stuff. Donations would come in, and people would send clothing, used clothing, and they got bundles and bundles. And Martha Boss reported one time they had 200 bundles of clothing waiting to be sorted, sitting on their beds in this little flat up above 232 Typo Road. I don't know where they slept. But, uh, you know, and then sometimes maybe it wasn't properly laundered or it had sat in the Hong Kong humidity for a long time. It was kind of gamey, but, you know, they distributed it. It was all needed and it all got used. So the Lutheran mission was uh, able to provide assistance to uh, blind people, so both, both adults and children. Um, so that would have helped with their education. It helped with their education. And kind of coincidental with the blind, just there were other refugees. Nobody had, you know, nobody came with, with skills that were, were marketable. And he had a huge force of people that needed to find some way to make any kind of a living. And uh, coincidentally, if you look at uh, history, that was the decade that the transistor radio came of age. And so there were huge plants of people assembling transistor radios. In the early 50s, the new rage was plastic flowers. And so, you know, that became an industry here. And people could take... I remember seeing people with bags and bags of parts for flowers. And they'd haul them off to their, you know, shed, wherever they were living, up on the hillside along the road to Stanley or whatever it was, and over by uh, Tiger Bomb Gardens. And, you know, and they'd be putting together flowers. they get paid by the piece, I assume, or by the pound or by the bag. You know, and then they'd haul the assembly flowers back to whoever wherever they were being collected. The third thing that was uh, invented at the time was the way mass-produced noodles. Because I guess up until that time, they did the old way with the, the guy flopping the dough and stretching it. And somehow some man invented a way to make make noodles. And so it was the beginning of ramen and noodles. And, and so people got jobs in noodle factories. And uh, so all this labor was, was there. And people worked for ridiculously low wages. But... They were at least able to have the pride of being able to support themselves at some extent. And some of the refugees that we worked with got started with stitching, embroidery, and other handicraft kind of things. And so Martha, Martha Boss, and uh, Gertrude Simon started helping these. They would buy the materials. They would sell them to the refugees, or they would provide them to the refugees. The refugees would make them into napkins or tablecloths or, or coverlets or something like that. And then they would advertise back to the states, you know, you can support the refugees by buying their, their embroidery and so forth. And this became a big enough industry that they actually branched off and became Lutheran handicrafts, which became part of welfare handicrafts. 
And they used to have a shop right there by uh, the Peninsula Hotel on Salisbury Road. And so for years, the, the refugees supported themselves by making handicrafts, which they sold to little old ladies back in the States for Christmas presents. And <clears throat> the whole thing was financed basically by these two women who were making a missionary salary, which was less than 100 U.S. dollars a month. And they, they would be sort of the, the go-betweens. And uh, they did it in their, quote, time off, you know, because they were, they were teaching school. They were running, you know, various projects. They were doing this clinic. They were running the tuberculosis sanitarium. Oh, and by the way, they're helping with this other project. So I don't know how they ever managed to even sleep. You know, there was, it's, it's unbelievable what, what kind of energy. And these, I guess at the time these women would have been in their 40s and 50s. Gertrude had been in China for 20 years. Martha had been in China for 10. And Lorraine had only been in China for two years when 1949 came along. So they were career people and uh, inspirational now, you spent time here about seven years in the 1970s. You're back now with your two volumes that have been recently published. You can uh, purchase them at Swindon's in, in Hong Kong. So it's the, the second one, that volume two, that, that pertains more to Hong Kong is uh, Lutherans on the Yangtze, uh, centenary account of the Missouri Synod in China. But that's by David Cole, looking at the foundations of the Lutheran mission here in Hong Kong with those three women. These days, what kind of a presence do you have here? Um, the local Lutheran Church became its own separate synod in about 1975. It's called the Lutheran Church Hong Kong Synod, and their uh, headquarters are in Yao Yachen at the former seminary that the mission built. And they have a thriving church of about 10,000 active baptized members. They have about 20,000 students in their various schools. And uh, they do amazing community service things through the Martha Boss Center in Homantin. My thanks to David Cole, the author of Lutherans on the Yangtze, a centenary account of the Missouri Synod in China. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.